So if you have a copy of the Bible, please find it and use the table of contents if you have to, to locate this little bitty letter, the letter of James. It's almost to the end. It's almost to the maps at the back of the Bible. And find this passage that Eva, Eva Dito, just read to us. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So we're beginning a new series of sermons this morning from the book of James. And I think that you're going to see that this is a powerful and relevant and very helpful little book of the Bible for each of us today in this crazy time of the coronavirus. So I encourage you, if you're not deeply familiar with the Bible, I encourage you to learn how to find the book of James. And we're going to probably be here for about 17 weeks through the end of August going through the book. And maybe every week you could set aside 15 or 20 minutes and read through the book. That's all it takes for the average reader to read the whole book. There's just over 2,000 words. It's pretty short, and um, reading it over and over would be helpful. Now, this morning, we're going to focus on these first four verses of the book, and I want you to notice three things that God teaches us about being Christians in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of difficult times. So for us today, that means being Christians in the midst of this pandemic. So here they are. I'll just name them first, and then I'll spend some time talking about each one. First of all, being a Christian in the midst of a pandemic, it means we have an identity that's strong enough to survive the pandemic. Number two, Being a Christian means we have a unique choice in the face of this pandemic. So one, being a Christian means we have an identity that's strong enough to survive the pandemic. Number two, being a Christian means we have a unique choice in the face of the coronavirus. And number three, being a Christian means we have a real hope no matter what the future holds. All right, let's take each of these in terms. And the first one will be by far the longest, so don't watch your clock because you'll think when I get to the end of the first one, the sermon's going to be 18 hours long. It won't be, it it probably won't even be half that long, I promise. So um, here we go. Number one, being a Christian means we have an identity that's strong enough to survive the coronavirus. Notice verse one, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings notice James begins the letter by identifying himself he is James that's his name he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ now part of what makes this interesting is that James the name James was one of the most popular names at the time uh, of this letter it was in the top 10 list of the most popular names So normally, back then, when you had a common name, you went on to clarify yourself in one of three ways. Either by naming your father, James, the son of Zebedee, is one of the Jameses in the Bible. Or by naming your hometown, James from Nazareth, you might say. Or by using your nickname. Uh, Peter had a nickname. Uh, Various people in the Bible had nicknames. But James doesn't do any of those things. The way he identifies himself... Is not his family, not his hometown, 
but that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes that interesting is that this guy, James, who wrote this letter is actually the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus' mother was Mary. James' mother was Mary. His father was Joseph. We know this from Mark chapter 6, verse 3. We're told that Jesus had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. And James is the oldest of that crowd. Jesus was the oldest brother in the family. And then after him was James. And then once Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, which was around the year 30 AD, we know that over the next few years, James became the primary leader of the church. He was the first Christian bishop before the center of Christianity shifted away from Jerusalem to Rome in the west and Constantinople in the east. In those days, in those first few decades, during the 40s and the 50s of the first century, if you asked anyone in the world, who is the primary leader of Christianity right now? They would have listed three people, James, Peter, and Paul, And James, they would have said, was foremost. Peter and Paul, definitely important. But all through the New Testament, they're constantly deferring to James, submitting to him, arguing with him at times. But at the end of the day, they listened to him and they followed his lead. What I'm saying is that James had serious credentials. He was the brother of Jesus. He grew up with Jesus. He played kickball, basketball with Jesus. And he was the leader of the church. But that's not his identity. That's not what gives him value. That's not what gives him worth. That's not what makes him unique. What about you? Who are you? What makes you you? What makes you different from all of the other Susans in the world? What makes you valuable? What gives you a sense of worth? Why do you exist? Why is the world better with you than it would be without you? In, the, in this time of the coronavirus, with so many things in our schedules having been canceled, and with all of the deaths and all of the economic impacts, have you lost things? Have you lost things that mattered Have you lost chances? Have you lost lost opportunities? Have plans you had made that were really important been erased? How are you handling all of the losses of the coronavirus? The stress, the changes. Do you feel angry? Are you confused? Are you lost? Are you afraid? Have you had to miss out on something that it's just not fair? In seasons like this, We have an opportunity to remember things we forget when we're not in crisis. And one of those is what is our core identity. Look at it this way. In traditional cultures, your identity comes from your duty and your role in your community. If you ask a person in a traditional non-Western culture, if you ask this person... Who are you? They'll likely say something like, I am a daughter of, or a father of, or a member of a particular tribe or people. 
I've got this role in the family. I've got this role in my tribe. And the way that person has a sense of worth comes from fulfilling that role, those obligations, when their family sees that they've done that or their tribe sees that they've done that and affirms them for what they've done. It bestows honor on them because they've sublimated their own individual interest for the good of the whole. And in that culture, that's how you know who you are. That's your identity. That's how you know you're a good person and you have value. And to be honest, many people in, in the modern West find that way of getting identity suffocating. Because there's not a lot of movement possible. You're captive to what your family and your tribe think you need to do. Well, then there's our modern Western culture's way of doing identity. In our schools today, here in Harrisonburg, whether they're public schools or to be quite frankly honest with you, many of our private Christian schools in our schools, in our books, in our movies, whether it's TikTok or Instagram, you get your identity, your sense of worth and value and uniqueness, not by fulfilling your family's expectations. Here in our modern world, we have been bewitched into getting our identity, the thing that makes us valuable by looking inward. You find yourself, your real self, by looking inside. You discover your deepest dreams, your, your deepest desires, and then be true to them at all costs. Be true to yourself. Traditional cultures say be true to your family, your tribe. The modern West says be true to yourself. Discover your authentic self and be that. And don't let society or your family in any way impose on you an identity that would be horrible. The worst thing you can do is conform to other people's expectations. That's tyranny. But here's the trick. That doesn't work. Our society is filled with people who are trying to do that. And the evidence is overwhelming. This is a terrible way to go about figuring out who you are. And what makes you valuable. It is filled with insecurity and self-harm and pain and suffering. Our society will go in the record books for many things. But it will not go down in the record books as a society of happiness and satisfaction. And one of the fundamental reasons is we've been misled about what gives us our value and identity. Our modern approach, be true to yourself, look within, is crushing. So the traditional approach, look out, is suffocating. The modern approach, look in, is crushing. But notice what God is teaching us through James is that we've got another option. There's problems with looking out. There's problems with looking in. But there is a better way, and that's to look up. That's what James did. A Christian can experience a truly liberating approach to identity that comes from receiving our identity, not from our family, not from our own fickle hearts, but from our creator. That's what James had discovered. Each one of us has been created by a personal God and given a personal mission and a calling. And James shows us what it's like to have an identity that is bigger than being the brother of Jesus. That's bigger than being the leader of the church. He shows us what it's like to have an identity that is not based on family or achievement. He has plenty of that. But at the end of the day, his core identity 
was that he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has the coronavirus revealed to you that your identity has grown wrapped up in things that now that they're gone, now that they're lost, you're in trouble? The good news is that there's a better way. When we turn in faith with our whole lives to God the Father and we ask him to accept us, to adopt us, to unite us to himself, not on the basis of our performance or in moral efforts, but because of Christ's performance and his death for us and on behalf of us, suddenly we have an identity that's strong enough to survive whatever loss the coronavirus gives us. When we receive a relationship with God that is a gift, and it's not based on our past, no matter how good or bad it was, and it's not based on our present or our future attainments, but it is based on Christ's spiritual attainments. Jesus lived the life that we should live, and he died in place of us. He died the death that we should have died. And when we rest in him alone for our salvation... He becomes our substitute and our representative. On the cross, Jesus was treated as we deserve to be treated so that when we believe in him, we will be treated as he deserves to be treated. This is the heart of Christianity. It's the sharp difference between Christianity and the other faiths. In many other religions, you're expected to achieve your way to a strong identity. To salvation. And you do that through moral effort or religious observance. But in Christianity, we are delivered from that burden. Through faith in Christ, we become God's beloved children. And what we see here with James is that no matter what happens, once you've locked into that, no matter what happens, no matter how successful Or have a big of a failure you are. When you can say that fundamentally what gives me value and worth and uniqueness is that I have drawn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives me worth, uniqueness and identity. And that path really does work. It really does. So what about you? Have you been bewitched by the modern approach to finding yourself? Are you still looking inside, building your life on your passions and your dreams and your desires and the affirmation of others? Or have you looked up? Have you put your faith, your whole identity, your whole life, have you learned to say in response to the question, who are you? Have you learned that the best answer you could ever give, the only one that really works, is when you can truly say, who am I? I belong to God. I am who I am before God. The things that God says about me, those are the true things. And notice how this changes the choice you have in the face of suffering. James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops, produces steadfastness. And steadfastness must have its full effects. So that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. That means a whole person, a a full human. 
Okay, so here we have James writing a letter to the church that spread out all over the place. And these Christians are suffering. We'll see it in the weeks ahead. They are going through very serious suffering, primarily related to poverty, but also related to persecution and temptations and desire for revenge and all kinds of issues. They're going through lots of suffering. And notice he talks about meeting or facing trials of many kinds. He uses this word, when you meet trials or when you face trials of many kinds. Now remember, he was the brother of Jesus. He stole that word from Jesus. Jesus used that word in one of his most famous stories. Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a story about a guy who's traveling down from to Jerusalem to Jericho and he meets robbers. He fell in among robbers. He faced robbers. That's the exact same word in the original language the Bible is written in, in Greek. And these robbers, they stripped him and beat him and departed, left him for dead. There it is. That's our word. Whenever you fall into trials, you're not looking for them. It's not fair. They hurt you. They take things from you. This is talking about when your life gets interrupted. When stuff happens that really just screws up the nice plan you had laid out. You encounter some issue or thing that throws a wrench in your life. And James says, these trials, they come in many forms. And you know that, don't you? Long-term, serious health issues, that's a trial. Financial troubles, being laid off. A broken relationship with your child or your parent or a friend or co-worker. Or, or maybe it's not a broken relationship. Maybe it's an absent one. You're longing for a relationship. That's a trial. Depression. Things that have happened in the past and leave these deep scars in your life. Or things that you've done to others and you are haunted by the shame and the regret of them. Or unrelenting temptation. These are all of us have experienced times where things seemed as if they couldn't get any worse. Only to watch in horror as they do. And it may be that for some listening to this sermon right now, this is how life is in this moment for you. You feel overwhelmed and it doesn't matter if the trials are physical or social or educational or relational or spiritual. We wonder in these kind of moments, can I keep going? And what God's word teaches us here is that in those moments, instead of looking at the trial, we have to look through the trial to its potential outcome. That word, consider it pure joy. Count it all joy. That means this kind of joy is not a feeling. It's not an instinct. It's a choice. It's a chosen attitude. James is not telling us so much you've got to feel joy when life stinks. He's saying, he's not saying pretend like it's fun when everything gets ruined. He's saying the person of faith will find the possibility of a consciously chosen attitude based not on what you feel, but notice the third word in verse 3, what you know. For you know. Choose joy, verse 2. In the midst of the pain, 
in the midst of all the feelings you've got because you know something in verse 3. You deliberately choose the attitude of joy based on the fact that you have a chance to develop a quality that is required to be a mature Christian. He's not saying wear your happy face. What God is teaching us here is that even though one of the things about suffering is that it becomes all-consuming, it gets hard to think about anything else, we can become so utterly absorbed in what we're going through, it can seem impossible to look beyond the immediacy of our pain to anything else. But what we see here is that when your identity is really in Christ and what he's done for you and what he says about you, then suddenly you recognize that in suffering, the battle is a battle of the will. James is not saying that Christians will automatically be able to experience the emotion of joy and suffering. No, he's saying consider it, choose it, count it, rise up. We've got to fight to think about the trial in this way. We've got to consciously force our, pers- our perspective to be focused on what can happen. And what is it that he says can happen? I can get tough. I can get the kind of faith that is steadfast, that is patient, and that endures. And there is no other way to get that quality. Endurance, steadfastness, patience in your faith. There's no other way to get it other than going through trials. So the Christian says, I would never look for this, but now I'm in a moment where I can get a thing that I can't get any other time. And this thing, this quality is critical to me becoming a whole person, complete. Not walking around like a half person, but a whole person, complete, a mature Christian. And that leads me to the last point. But let's first review. Being a Christian means we have an identity that's strong enough to survive all the losses this pandemic can bring. Being a Christian means we have a unique choice in the face of the pandemic, and that is the choice of joy because not we like what we're going through, but we like the possibility of becoming a mature Christian. And finally, being a Christian means we have a real hope no matter what the future holds. No one knows how this pandemic is going to play out. We don't know how long our lives are going to be deeply interrupted. We don't know when the the kind of stay-at-home orders are going to lift and how they're going to lift and what that's going to mean for life in the future. None of us knows what lies ahead. Our world has pivoted around this epidemic and, and things are going to be different. But what we do know as Christians is that no matter what happens... If we will walk through any suffering with the attitude of joy coming from the knowledge that walking through suffering with faith in Jesus will produce a steadfastness to our faith, then we've got a hope. And our hope is matureness as Christians. This is not about quietly accepting or wistfully longing for things to be better. This is not about a stiff upper lip. This is not stoic toughness. This is about seeing through the trial with your eyes fixed on becoming a mature Christian. A person who yields your entire life to God and maturity, that kind of wholehearted devotion to God requires patient endurance. 
In other words, don't panic. Don't overreact to the pandemic. Don't turn a problem into a crisis. Be patient. And when you do that, when you develop this grit, you will get something that's necessary for you to grow up, no matter how old you are. Verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Moderns, we don't like this word perfect because we're all scared of being tyrannized by somebody's expectation. A different thing is going on here. This word perfect means whole. Don't you want to be a whole person? Aren't you tired of your halfness? If we stop and think about it, this is actually what we should long for as Christians. To become whole in Christ. To know him more fully and more intimately. And it is trials that give us the opportunity to mature in our faith. In fact, we can't get to maturity without trials. Faith, it's like a little muscle in the human body. And as it's worked out, it grows. It needs something to push against. Physical training is painful and sweaty. Muscle growth requires discomfort. Faith requires pushback. Trials and difficulties are an opportunity to exercise your faith. A mature Christian, this is what you and I need to become. Total devotion. To the one true God. That's the only way to be a whole person. Your whole life, everything about you, every part of you, every part of your life devoted to God. Total dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Learning to trust God for everything in every part of your life. Not double-minded, not half devoted to God and half devoted to the world. And to get there, we've got to choose joy in the midst of suffering. That is the gift of the coronavirus. Not a happy, clappy, false and shallow happiness, but the authentic attitude of joy because this suffering you're going through can bring you to the goal of life, which is to be a mature servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a Christian means we can have an identity strong enough to survive this pandemic and we, and we will have the real choice of joy in the face of this suffering because we have the real hope of growing into whole people, mature Christians through the suffering that this pandemic will bring into each of our lives. Let's pray.